Good morning to you. If you have your Bibles, you'll take them and turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, where we find one of the high points of Jesus' earthly ministry, the transfiguration of our Lord. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36 will be our text this morning. And let's give our attention to God's Word together. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with Him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as He was praying, the appearance of His face was altered and His clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with Him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of His departure, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with Him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw His glory and the two men who stood with Him. And as the men were parting from Him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what He said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Amen. Let's pray together as we consider God's Word. Father, we do thank You that You are a God who speaks and who reveals Himself clearly to us. We thank You, Father, that the Scriptures are life for our soul. That to read the Bible is to encounter the voice of the living God. Not just Your voice, Father, in and contained in the Bible, but the Bible as Your authoritative, inspired, inerrant, and life-giving Word to Your people. Give us grace to hear, God. Give us grace to listen to Christ by faith. I pray that You would keep me from error. I pray You would give us all discernment, Father. I pray that even now, as we consider Your Word here about the transfiguration of our Lord, that our hearts would be prepared by the Holy Spirit to both receive the bread of life in the Scriptures and then also to celebrate the bread of life broken for us at the Lord's table here in just a few moments. And we pray all of this, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and for His glory, Amen. Friends, if we were to sum up today's passage in in one word, that word would be glory. The transfiguration is a moment of glory. From the setting on the mountaintop to the dazzling brightness of the scene to the overshadowing cloud that Descends upon the mountain. Uh, descends upon the mountain. Each each element of this passage speaks of glory. But at the same time, it's important to be clear what kind of glory we mean when we say the transfiguration is about glory. The glory of this text is not like the glory of a sunrise or a majestic mountain range. It's not even the glory of something unusual or something unexpected. No, the glory of the transfiguration is the glory of heaven itself breaking into this world and and shining out 
from the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's otherworldly. These verses are otherworldly. And that's what makes this passage significant. Here we find God pulling back the curtain and allowing us to see the glory of His Son, the glory of His presence. Here in these verses, we get a, a glimpse of the King in all of His splendor. We get a glimpse of Jesus Christ who reigns forever over the kingdom of God. It's a moment of heavenly, otherworldly glory, and that means it's a moment of revelation. It's a moment of God pulling things back, so to speak, so that we can see, so that we get just a glimpse even of both who Jesus is and what's in store for Him as He continues His ministry. And that means this is a key moment in Luke's Gospel. The transfiguration balances out the picture of Jesus' identity as the Christ. Remember, we just heard Peter confess that Jesus is the Christ back in verse 20. And we just heard Jesus say that as the Christ, He must suffer many things, verse 22. So the Christ who suffers, and now the transfiguration comes in and rounds out that picture. This moment on the mountaintop is God's way of reminding us that suffering is not the final word for Jesus Christ. He is the Christ who will suffer and then enter glory. Glory awaits because Jesus is the Father's beloved Son. So you see how the transfiguration rounds out or balances out the picture of who Jesus is. The transfiguration and the cross then go together to give you the two points of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will suffer and He will enter His glory. He's the suffering Savior of the church and He's the glorious Son of God. That's what the transfiguration is about. It's suffering leading to glory and that's the road ahead for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a moment of glory. So, let's spend our time together meditating on this, on the glory of Christ that is revealed in the transfiguration. It's clear that this passage is about glory, but what in particular do we see in these verses? What in particular do we learn? Well, if you like to take notes, this is where we're going. We're going to see three distinct aspects of Jesus' glory that help us better understand who He is and what He's come to do. Three distinct aspects of His glory. They build on one another. And then at the end of the sermon, there's just one grand Takeaway. There's just one application at the end that we ought to make as the people of God. So that's how we're going to proceed. Let's note these three aspects of Jesus' glory and then conclude with that one response. We begin in verses 28 and 29. The transfiguration reveals Jesus' essential glory. His essential glory. We already noted the setting in verse 28, how Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to pray. That setting of prayer on the mountaintop should raise your expectation as you read Luke's Gospel. Here in Luke, Jesus prays before significant things happen. So Jesus goes up on the mountaintop to pray. That means verse 28 should get our attention that something is about to occur. And in verse 29... We see that that's true. Notice again the strange but glorious event. Verse 29. And as Jesus was praying, the appearance of His face was altered and His clothing became dazzlingly white. 
Friends, all the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke at least, the synoptic gospels, all the gospel accounts agree at this point that something remarkable happened to Jesus and it was physically visible. Luke says the appearance of His face was altered. It took on another form, another aura, you might say. Well, what exactly does that mean? What did it look like? Luke doesn't tell us. We don't know exactly, and that's part of the point. The key is not so much the specifics of what happened, but the nature of it. Something glorious is unfolding now, and it's visible on Jesus' face. And the next phrase draws this out more fully. Luke says that Jesus' clothes became dazzling white. Matthew says that they were white as light. And Mark says they were so intensely white They were whiter than any person on earth could make a piece of clothing. So clearly, all of the Gospel writers want us to understand this is brilliant. It's like it's a brilliant brightness that's emanating from Jesus. It's it's remarkable really. A light so brilliant, it appears that Jesus is clothed in light itself. And maybe that's the best way to envision it. Try to picture the Lord Jesus standing before His disciples beaming with glory so intense that the only fitting piece of clothes for Him is light. Light itself. Dazzlingly light. Just wrapped around Him. It's glorious. But here's here's the key connection. Here's the point that helps us see what we ought to see. In the Bible, light is most often associated with whom? Well, with God, right? It's all through the Scriptures. God created light. God's face shines light on His people. God's Word gives light to dispel darkness. God's people walk in the light of His countenance. It's it's all through the Bible. And it culminates in that memorable statement from the Apostle John in, in 1 John. God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. Light then is connected with the glory of the living God. Now look back at Luke 9. And ask yourself, where is the light at the transfiguration coming from? It's coming from Jesus, isn't it? We can't miss this, friends. Jesus is not reflecting light like the way the moon reflects the light of the sun. No, Jesus is radiating light Himself. He is the sun. And He's shining with glory and with brightness all His own. That's the takeaway from verse 29. I know it's strange on some level to think that His face was altered, But this is Luke grasping for ways to tell you, no, no, seriously, he was glowing with the glory of God. He was shining with the glory of God. That's the the takeaway of verse 29. At his essence, Jesus is glorious. In fact, that's probably not even the best way to say it. At his essence, Jesus is glory. He doesn't reflect glory. He radiates glory in and of himself. It's not external to Him, it's essential to Him. You see the difference? A mountain range has glory because it's reflecting the glory of the Creator. That's not what is happening here. Jesus has it of Himself. It's radiating from Him. The glory here is not external, but essential. Belonging to His very nature. That's the first aspect. The transfiguration reveals Jesus' essential glory. That takes us right into the second aspect. This time, verses 30-31. to The transfiguration reveals Jesus' saving glory. His essential glory and now His saving glory. 
as Jesus radiates with the brightness of glory, two other men appear with Him on the mountaintop. Moses and Elijah. Now, just on the surface, that's pretty remarkable. (laughs) Moses and Elijah are well-known figures in the Old Testament. Men through whom God did mighty things. But there were a lot of mighty men of God in the Old Testament. And so if the goal was simply to highlight significant or memorable people from the Old Testament, then there's a whole host of figures whom God, had, whom God could, have, could have chosen. But instead, He picks Moses and Elijah, which should make you ask the question, why them? Why Moses and Elijah and not David and Samuel? Why Moses and Elijah and not Joshua and Isaiah? Why these two figures? Well, friends, it has to do with what each man represents. In the Old Testament, both Moses and Elijah are connected with the promise of a new age. The promise of a new age, a new day, in which God's Messiah would come and with redemptive power, the Messiah would lead God's people to return to the Lord God. Two passages in the Old Testament in particular draw out this expectation. The first is Deuteronomy 18, where Moses prophesied that God would raise up another prophet like himself, a greater prophet, and it was to this greater than Moses prophet that the people of God would listen. You remember in the book of Deuteronomy and all throughout the Exodus, the people of God weren't too keen on listening to Moses. And so Moses, as he prepares to die, says, one day God's going to raise up someone greater and you'll listen to him. It's to that one that you will listen. But this is the key. This Deuteronomy 18 prophet would not be merely a prophet. He would speak the Word of God with finality. And it would be his Word that comes to define who belongs to the people of God. In other words... Moses predicted that one day a much greater person than himself would come and this much greater person would finish everything that the prophets were supposed to do. This this much greater person would, would reveal God once and for all fully without any need for further revelation. That's what Moses in Deuteronomy 18 anticipated. The second Old Testament passage is Malachi chapter 4, which is connected with Elijah. Malachi chapter 4 anticipates the day of the Lord when God would finally crush His enemies and restore all things, including His own people. So there's a day coming when God will cut off the wicked forever. But Malachi said that in that same day when God cuts off the wicked, the sun of God's righteousness would shine with, with healing on those who fear the name of the Lord. Now, here's the connection with Elijah. How do we know when that great final day is coming? Well, Malachi says that God will raise up Elijah again before that great final day. And Elijah returning would be like the signal. It would be the trumpet blast to the people of God to say, get ready, here it is. Here's the great restoration of all that God is going to do. So you put those two passages together, Deuteronomy 18, someone greater than Moses who will finish what the prophet started, and Malachi chapter 4, Elijah coming, signaling that the great day of restoration has arrived. Those two passages, put them together, and you can see how Moses and Elijah 
represent a great hope for the people of God. They were looking forward to the day when God would reveal Himself in glory and redeem His people once and for all. Now that's only the first part of the significance. That's the prelude that you might say to to the glory. Notice again now what Luke writes, verse 31. We've got that Old Testament background in mind. Look at verse 31. Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus' departure, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So it's significant enough that Moses and Elijah are conversing with Jesus. I mean, that fact alone speaks to Jesus' glory. Think about it. If Moses and Elijah, who have been dead for centuries, showed up, you would expect them to be the focus of the conversation, right? Let's hear what they have to say. But that's not what happens here. Moses and Elijah show up and they want to talk to Jesus. They want to talk with Him about what He's going to do. So that fact alone speaks to the glory of Jesus. But there's something else too. There's something else that speaks of the great Gospel work that Jesus is about to do. Look again, verse 31. Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus about His departure. Do you see that? His departure. You could also translate that as they spoke to Jesus about His exodus. In fact, your Bible probably has a footnote to that. They spoke with Jesus about His exodus, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And at this point, friends, biblical alarm bells should be ringing in your ears pretty loudly. They spoke about His exodus that He was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. Remember, why is He going to Jerusalem? He just told us, verse 22, He's going to Jerusalem to die. He's going to Jerusalem to take up the cross where He will shed His blood and die and then rise again on the third day. So Jerusalem is the place of Jesus' suffering. Jerusalem is the place of His cross, in other words. But here's the glory. Here's the glory. That cross will be the fulfillment of everything that Moses and Elijah represent there on the mountaintop. That cross of suffering will be the place where Jesus undertakes a new and greater exodus for the people of God. That's why they're talking with Him about His departure, about His exodus. Because they come to say, hey Jesus, You're about to do what we anticipated God would do. And Jesus says, yes, that's what I'm about to do. I'm going to take up the cross. Just as Moses led God's people out of bondage and into the promised land, so also Jesus will accomplish an even greater exodus. He will deliver God's people from the bondage of sin and death. And He will bring them into God's own presence, which is what the promised land was about in the first place. And through this new and greater exodus, Jesus will establish the kingdom of God, where God's people are gathered in and where the wicked are cut off forevermore. That's That's the glory. That's why Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about His death. Because it's through the cross that everything they anticipated will be fulfilled. That's the glory of the transfiguration. It's not simply that Jesus stands in line with Moses and Elijah as another link in the chain. No, Jesus stands above Moses and Elijah as the one who fulfills what they anticipated. You see the difference? Moses and Elijah promised salvation. Jesus goes to Jerusalem to accomplish salvation. Friends, there's a world of difference between promising something and accomplishing something. And in the Bible, that difference is called your and my salvation. 
That's why they talk with Jesus about what He will do. Jesus possesses saving glory. Before we move on, one more thing, verse 31, that we should note. It's the, it's the clear indication of divine sovereignty in verse 31. You see that phrase, which He was about to accomplish? That's a very specific expression, very specific construction of God's sovereign will. There's no uncertainty when it says what He was about to accomplish. It's, it's determined. It's ordained by God. That's, that's the point here. The cross, which is what they're talking about, is the definite plan of God for the salvation of God's people. It's not a surprise that Jesus is going to die. And there's nothing uncertain when it comes to whether or not He will rise again from eternity past. This is how God ordained that His people would be saved through the death and resurrection of the Son. Friends, this is also key as we think about understanding the Old Testament. It's not as though God made a promise through Moses and then a promise through Elijah, and then He said, now I wonder how I can make those happen. Oh, I'll send my Son and He'll die on the cross, and that's how I'll make those things happen. No, that's backwards. You start with the Son giving up His life, and then you get the promise through Moses and the promise through Elijah, and then the fulfillment in Jesus. Do you see the difference? One is God coming up with things on the fly. The other is God saying, this is how it will be, and then He does it. That's what verse 31 is about. It's a note of divine sovereignty. And, and, and lest we think that this point of divine sovereignty is just about getting all of our theological T's crossed and I's dotted, let me remind you, friends, that this note of divine sovereignty means that your salvation does not rest on your accomplishment, but on Christ's. Your salvation does not rest on your will, but on God's. And from eternity past, He has planned to save His people in this way. And that means, brothers and sisters, that He will keep you firm to the end. No pandemic, no civil unrest, no election result will ever undo what God has determined to accomplish in your life. And as Christians of all people, we ought to be the ones most hopeful and confident in those things. I actually love this encouragement from the transfiguration. Where is Jesus headed? For glory, without a doubt. And so where are Jesus' people headed? For glory, without a doubt. Because He will not lose any of them and God will finish what He's determined to do in His Son. So, this might not be the passage that you think of first whenever you're struggling with assurance of salvation, but it is a passage that can assure our hearts, friends. You read the transfiguration and you say, where is Jesus going? He's going to glory. Where am I going to glory with Him? He will not be separated from His people. The transfiguration then reveals the saving glory of Christ. And friends, there's a world of confidence in that. That's number two. Let's look at the third aspect of Jesus' glory. And this comes with the help of our old friend Peter. The Apostle Peter. If you're like me and find that you often speak too quickly, then you love the Apostle Peter. He's bold, that's for certain. <laughs> but sometimes Peter should probably just be quiet. This is one of those times when Peter probably should have been quiet. But God uses it to reveal more of the truth. Verses 32 to 35 Aspect number three, the transfiguration reveals Jesus' unique glory. His unique glory. Essential, saving, 
unique glory. Verse 32 establishes that Peter, James, and John are eyewitnesses of all that happened. They were really sleepy, but then Luke tells us they wake up in time to see Jesus radiating with light as well as Moses and Elijah standing there with Him. So the disciples see what has happened and it has a dramatic effect, uh, a dramatic effect on their lives. In fact, you can read 2 Peter chapter 1 for an example of how deeply this moment shaped the apostles. So all of that to say, Peter is an eyewitness. He sees Jesus' glory on the mountaintop. But then Peter decides this is a good time for him to make a suggestion. Now, if you were present at a conversation where the three participants were Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, you can be pretty sure that saying nothing is your role in that conversation. Like, just don't, we, don't, we don't need you to talk. If it's Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, just be quiet. But Peter is bold, <laughs> if nothing else. And as Moses and Elijah start to leave, Peter decides that he should take action. Notice what he says, verse 33. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Thanks for letting us know, Peter. Let's make three tents. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. That last phrase, not knowing what he said, is Luke's way of gently saying he should have said nothing. He should have just said nothing. So what is Peter suggesting? Well, it could be that Peter wants to prolong the moment um, and, and celebrate like a revamped Feast of Tabernacles from the Old Testament. Remember that? Leviticus 23. could be that. It could be that Peter simply recognizes this is a really big deal and let's make some... Let's make some monuments. Let's make some shrines that would commemorate what, what a big deal this is. So whatever the reason, Peter doesn't know what to say, but he doesn't want it to stop. So he, he says what seems best in his mind. Let, let's build three tents, Jesus. Verse 34, though, brings a correction. And the correction comes from God. Notice verse 34. As Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. So what's this about? Once again, taken back to the Old Testament, which by the way, I hope you're getting the theme. If you want to understand the New Testament better, understand the Old Testament better. Right? The old helps us see the new. When God came down at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, what signaled His presence? A great cloud. right? A great cloud of Glory. When God came and indwelled the tabernacle, what signaled His presence? A great cloud would descend upon the tabernacle. The same thing is true here. The cloud signifies the presence of God. So the Holy One, the living God, has manifested Himself here on the mountaintop. But then the living God speaks. Verse 35. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is My Son, My Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. That's the correction for Peter, friends. Peter wants to build three tents, and so God comes down and says, no, Peter, it's not three people who should be celebrated. It's one, my son. In fact, notice that after the voice speaks out of the cloud, only Jesus is left. There's only one person left to listen to. It's Jesus. That's key. 
This moment is significant not because three great people are here, but because Jesus is here and Jesus is God's Son. That's why you should be awed, Peter. You see, it's a lot like Jesus' baptism, isn't it? Where the voice comes out of heaven and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Well, now the same truth is declared again by God. Jesus is not merely a prophet. He's not merely an authoritative teacher. He's not merely a mighty miracle worker. It's true, Jesus does function in all of those ways. He does all of those things. But that's not the essence of who He is. Most significantly, Jesus is the Son of God. He is unique, you see, in a way that Moses and Elijah cannot match. Jesus shares the Father's glory and nature. Which means that Jesus is the one who makes God fully known. It's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 that Rodrigo read for us earlier that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to see what God is like? Look at His Son and you'll see who He is. And that's the correction that God gives to the Apostle Peter. Peter wants to commemorate three mighty men and God wants Peter to see His one and only Son. At the same time, though, we shouldn't be too hard on Peter. Yes, he spoke too quickly. But God's voice in verse 35 is also a confirmation of what Peter confessed back in verse 20. You see, boldness cuts both ways. It's a strength and a weakness. Peter spoke too quickly here, but back in verse 20, Peter was absolutely right in what he said. Do you remember that? Verse 20, Peter said, you are the Christ of God. And now God confirms Peter's confession. Look at verse 35 where God says Jesus is His chosen one. What's the significance of that title? Again, the Old Testament gives us the answer. At various points in the Old Testament, the Messiah was referred to as God's chosen servant, God's chosen one. Isaiah 42.1, Isaiah 49.7, Psalm 89.3. The Messiah is God's chosen servant, His chosen one. So here in Luke 9, when God says, this is my son, my chosen one, it's God's stamp of approval on Peter's confession. Peter said, Jesus is the Christ, and God comes down in the cloud and says, you're exactly right. He's my son, my chosen one. According to God, Jesus is the Christ, the servant, the chosen one who will redeem and deliver God's people from sin, and death. So if you want to build tents on the mountaintop, friends, then you only need to build one. Because Jesus is utterly and entirely unique. There's no one like Him. And therefore, therefore, only Jesus can save sinners like us. Only Jesus can save people who are estranged from God. We tend to think of the transfiguration as this odd moment that is set apart from the rest of the things that Jesus does. All the other things we see, you know, okay, I get that, I get that, I get that, I know how that's leading to the cross, I see how that points to the resurrection. And then we come to the transfiguration and you go, yeah, that's interesting, and we just go on to the next part. But the transfiguration helps us understand why it is that Jesus can save sinners at all and why it is that only Jesus can save sinners. 
there is a sense in which the transfiguration in one moment helps us understand why the Gospel is effective. Or, wh- or why Jesus is able to accomplish salvation. Just think about it. What do we see in Jesus here on the mountain? We see that He's fully God. He's fully God. The One who possesses the essential glory of God. The One who is uniquely from the Father. The only One who is fully God with the Father. Jesus is absolutely light of light. (laughs) The very essence of God in Jesus Christ. He is fully divine. And at the same time, on the same mountaintop, in the same person, Jesus is fully man. He's fully human. Friends, His His physical body had to be altered in order for the divine glory to shine through a bit. I know that that seems odd, but what it does mean clearly is that He's flesh and blood. That He's flesh and blood. And that's why He can fulfill all of those Old Testament promises about the Messiah. That's why He can save sinners like you and me. Because He shares in our nature too. He's like us in every way without sin. So the mystery of mysteries is here unfolding at the transfiguration and it helps us know why the Gospel works. The divine Son of God shares our blood. And that's why He can save. In that sense, the transfiguration is a glimpse of glory. What I said at the outset, this passage is about glory. The transfiguration is a glimpse of glory. But... And if you don't get anything else from today, I want you to get this. But the glory it reveals is nothing less than the glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. We cannot stress this enough, friends. When we talk about the glory of Christ, we're not talking about abstract ideas. We're not talking about a list of attributes or actions. We're not even talking about a set of unique things that might have happened in and around Him. The glory of Christ is revealed in the Gospel of His suffering and resurrection. Jesus' glory shines the brightest when our eyes see and rejoice in the reality that this uniquely Son of God, the One who is of the very essence of the Father, would shed His blood for sinners like us. Sinners who despised the very glory He's showing on the mountain. Friends, that's what the glory of Christ is. And if we say we want to be a church that's about the glory of Christ, and we do, then this is where we must press in deeper. Not in abstract ideas, not in slogans, but to a cross. To a cross that leads to the resurrection of the Son of God whose life gives us life and whose righteousness makes us righteous. The glory of Christ is not abstract. It's not intellectual. It's the Gospel, it's the cross, it's the empty tomb, and all of it is anticipated right here at the transfiguration. So far from being this odd event that we ought to say like, yeah, that happened, but I don't really know what it's about. When we read the transfiguration, we should rejoice that God gave His Son to save people like us. And so what should we do? That what's, what's our response? as we come to the end. God's Word always calls us to a response. So what is it here? Jesus possesses essential glory, saving glory, therefore unique glory. What should we do? Well, friends, God tells us. Verse 35. 
Notice the one grand application that brings the transfiguration home to us. Verse 35, God says, This is My Son, My Chosen One. Listen to Him. That's the response, friends. Listen to Him, God says. Listen to Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece of all that God is doing in this world. And therefore, Jesus is the focal point for all who would know God in this world. If you want to be right with God, then you must listen to Jesus. You must trust His Gospel that His death is the only payment for sin. And that His resurrection is the only foundation for your justification. And that His righteousness is the only sufficient thing to clothe you in the eyes of the Holy God. If you want to be right with God, then you must listen to Jesus. If you need strength for life and godliness, then you must listen to Jesus. You must walk every day by faith in His Word, trusting that His wisdom is enough to keep you from stumbling, that His grace is sufficient to cover you when you do stumble, and that His promises are strong enough to sustain your faith when it's weakest. Friends, there's nothing beyond that in the Christian life. If you need strength for life and godliness, then listen to Jesus. And if you need light and discernment in this upside-down world, and who doesn't, then you must listen first and foremost to Jesus. You must submit your thinking to His authority. You must adjust your ideas to His. And where the world doesn't line up with the straight edge of Jesus' Word, you must go with Jesus. If you need that kind of discernment, that kind of clarity, don't look out there, friends. The world is just a ball of confusion. Look right here to the Scriptures and listen to Jesus. There's more we could say, brothers and sisters. But perhaps we've said enough for now. You'll note that even in the passage, verse 36, the disciples took some time to reflect on what had occurred. It didn't sink into them immediately. It was only after the resurrection, after they reflected with the help of the Holy Spirit that they could fully grasp the glory of the moment. And so, I take it that that's the best way to conclude a sermon on the transfiguration with a call for reflection. It's not a list of things to do, friends. There is a call to reflect. The transfiguration is a glimpse of Jesus' glory, His essential, saving, unique glory as the Son of God. The takeaway given by God Himself is listen to this man, listen to Jesus. And so that's where I will end with a call to prayer, a call to reflect that God would take this glimpse of the glory of Christ and that He would use it to shape our lives to bring honor and glory to His Son. Let's pray that it would be so. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, how kind of You Father, how kind of You to be a God who speaks and reveals Himself in and through His Word. We thank You, Father, that every passage of the Bible comes together and through the inspiration of Your Holy Spirit allows us to see and rejoice in the glory of Your Son and the work that He's accomplished on behalf of His people at the cross. Father, we confess that we often breeze past these things far too quickly. 
the, the truth of God rests upon us far too lightly. Already, Father, our, our thoughts are turning towards what we have to do the rest of the day and what the next week holds. And so we pray for grace, Father, to repent of that and to be a people who linger over what You have said and who reflect and meditate upon, Father, and then display with their lives what it means to live for the glory of Christ. Father, would You help us to be the kind of church that people notice is not marked by the same hustle and bustle and to and fro from one thing to the next, but a church that's willing to linger on the deep things of God and be shaped by them? Help us, Father, in this way, we pray. For the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.